Good morning, church, and happy new year. What a blessing it is to be here back in person with you all, um, just worshiping, hearing everybody's voices here together. Um, As we begin this new year, we're going to be starting with a look into worship, what it looks like to worship, and the goal of today is for us to understand as a church that worship is a sacrifice. It's actually a lifestyle of sacrifice. We're going to dive into what that means uh, using Hebrews 13, 15, 15, and 16 as our basis for that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Hebrews 15, or 13, verse 15 with me? So if you can think back to our series on Hebrews that we wrapped up about six months ago, we talked about how the author of Hebrews throughout his letter has this idea that Jesus is better He offers it to us. He says that Jesus is better than what we had afforded to us in the Old Testament. He's better than the patriarchs of the Old Testament. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Moses. He's better than Noah. And he's also the better sacrifice. So the author of Hebrews takes the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and he he looks at, he points out in multiple ways how Jesus is the better sacrifice. We're going to dive into what this means today. So Without further ado, let's jump into Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So I'll know what sticks out to you first when you hear those verses. But to me, uh, I highlighted immediately this sacrifice of praise. I wasn't really sure what the author of Hebrews meant by that. And there's a quick definition right after. See, verse 13 ends with an explanation of the sacrifice of praise. It is the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And we'll dive into more of what that means in a second. But to fully understand the context that the the author is trying to establish here, we have to go back a little bit. Um, You see, the third word in verse 15 is therefore. And uh, I have a professor at our school that says, whenever there's a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? (laughs) So let's talk about that. Um, The therefore is pointing back to verse 10, where the author of Hebrews is discussing that Jesus is the better sacrifice. He says, we have a table that those who worship in the old sacrificial system cannot eat of. Because just as the burned offerings of the Old Testament were taken outside the camp and were burned, so too Jesus suffered outside the camp. The author's saying two things here. One, he's saying literally the type of sacrifice that Jesus represents was not possible to be eaten in the Old Testament. They literally couldn't eat it because the animal was burned up wholly. But what's more important to point out is what he is saying is this is the true sacrifice. This is the full promise of the sacrifice. Those old sacrifices of the Old Testament were all pointing to Jesus' sacrifice. Because when those animals were burned up, that paid for sins momentarily. But what needed to happen? Eventually, the Day of Atonement would come again, and they would need another sacrifice. And what we have afforded to us today is an everlasting sacrifice in Jesus Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He says we have an everlasting sacrifice, a true promise of payment for sins in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't stop there. 
he takes it one step further. And what he says to us is, we follow Jesus into that sacrifice. We follow Jesus into the sacrifice and the death that he paid for us, for our sins. We follow that with our lives. So worship is a sacrifice. Our worship today is a sacrifice. And we don't naturally apply those two words to each other. I think in today's modern context, we don't quite understand that worship is a sacrifice, but for the readers of, of Hebrews, for the original audience, they would have understood these two words as inseparable. Worship and sacrifice were inseparable. We don't live in a physical sacrifice world. Um, what that means is that there are physical altars and, and sacrifices that are paid. We don't live in a world that, that worships that way. But that was actually emblematic of worship. It was an essential aspect of worship in this time. And what's interesting is it caused the, the pagan neighbors of the early Christian church to assume that Christians were atheists. They actually believed that Christians were atheists because they didn't understand that you could worship a god without having physical sacrifices, without offering sacrifices to God. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, and it's backed up by other scripture, what he's saying is, well, we don't have worship without sacrifice. We do have a sacrifice, but it looks different. You see, in Romans 12, this is, this is brought up. Um, Romans 12 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Guys, worship is a sacrifice. And the sacrifice of praise can only be offered because the price for sin has already been paid through Jesus. And because of that, what we do is we come before God. We don't offer physical sacrifices. What we offer is his praise. We acknowledge his name. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name is our worship. And it is sacrifice with which God is pleased. So us, through Jesus' blood, can come to God and say, God, I don't need, you don't delight, as David said, you don't delight in physical sacrifices. You don't delight in bloodshed. You delight in praise. So we offer to God a sacrifice of praise by worshiping his name with our lips. But he doesn't stop there. Because verse 16 goes on to discuss that if you're worshiping God, if you're truly worshiping God, if his name is on your, then there's something, there's a change in your life. That change is verse 16. It says, and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices God is pleased. See, we worship God with our lips. But it's the fruit of lips that openly profess his name that is our worship, right? There's fruit. That leads us to our next point, the fact that worship is continuous. Verse 15 says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise and maybe we've heard this before, that worship is something that happens constantly in our lives. We've heard this idea that worship doesn't begin and end in the service before. Um, and we'll discuss more about how maybe we fail to actually apply that properly. But we have to ask ourselves a question of why is worship continuous? Why does it need to be continuous? Well, the answer to that is because our worship is in our nature. Humans, by their very nature, are worshipers. We will worship. And as Paul Tripp says, 
Humans can't be put into categories of those who worship and those who don't. We all worship, and what he says is the only matter is what or whom you worship. And maybe you're saying to yourself now, well, it's a good thing I'm in Christ, so that means I worship Christ. And I think you should hold off on saying that, because if you're found in Christ, that does not mean that your worship is continuously of him. That's where the author of Hebrews' argument comes in. It says we are worshiping continuously. Who are we worshiping? We are offering our praise to God. Because otherwise you won't do it. Hear this. This is what John Calvin has to say. It's a little darker take on what Paul Tripp says. He says that human nature is an idol-making factory. We, in our very nature, are worshiping, but what Calvin's saying is we're not naturally going to worship God. Yeah, we're going to worship. We're going to worship something that doesn't offer life. That's our natural inclination. We are naturally going to look at the things in this world and seek life in them, but never find it. I don't know what that looks like for you, but for me, it looks like worshiping perceptions. See, I live and die by the way other people view me. I live and die by whether you approve of what I do or if you don't. So if I hear somebody's approving me, if somebody's saying, you know what, man, you really did great, you know, I really like that song that you sang, or like, your voice is great, which I appreciate, but I'll be honest, in my life, there is a part of me that gains life from that. There's a part of me that lives by that validation. And I say, you know what? I'm fulfilled, at least for this time. I'm fulfilled by what you just said. And the opposite is true, and it's more drastic. If you disapprove of me, there's a reaction. It's immediate reaction. If you watch me, <laughs> maybe, maybe it looks like a little bit of frustration. You say, you know what, man? Man, you went a little flat on that verse. And I'm like, who are you to say that? Like, Get out of here. Maybe the reaction is more like, I just dismiss it altogether. I act like I didn't hear you or I, d I didn't care what you had to say. I said, oh, you know what? That's great, man. But the truth is, if you disapprove of me, this is true in my life, you might not see it, but when I'm alone, your disapproval eats at me. And ultimately, the disapproval that I get from other people, when I'm worshiping perceptions, when I'm worshiping the way that other people view me, when you disapprove, that leaves me broken. In the same way that I can be lifted up by your validation of me, I can be absolutely torn down by the most insignificant voice saying, that wasn't that great. And that's the truth of us when we are worshiping something that doesn't measure up. See, ultimately, it doesn't matter what we worship. If it is not God, it will find a way to break us. It will find a way to leave us broken, and we have no hope that that thing will ever make us whole again. We look for life in things that can never offer it. They make the promise. They seem like they're worthy of life. They seem like they can offer life to you, but they can't. You're looking for satisfaction in something that doesn't measure up, and I do it too. Maybe for you, it's not perceptions. Maybe it's appearances. Maybe you have a problem with worshiping appearances. I feel like I've been guilty of that one too. What that looks like is 
Maybe you wake up in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror, you say, you know what? I'm all right. Maybe not a 10. I'm solid. I'm a standard. I'll put myself as a standard. And if you worship your appearances, you naturally put yourself as the standard for which you view the rest of the world. And people become comparisons. They are simplified to comparisons to you. If you worship appearances, you look at other people and you gain life by saying, completely unbiased, but I'm better looking than you. But there's a problem. One, in the fact that you're tearing down other people to gain your own life. But then the same thing that's true of the disapproval, if you're worshiping perceptions, is true of people who are better looking than you if you worship appearances. It doesn't even have to be other people. It can actually be your own standard for yourself. If you don't measure up to your own standard, you risk losing your life. You risk being broken. Just by looking at yourself in the mirror, if your hair's off, it can be detrimental. The smallest thing can cause brokenness in us if we're not worshiping something that is worthy of our worship. And it's true. You know it to be true. You've seen this in your life. You've seen how this impacts you. Because we worship, and whatever we worship impacts the way we view the rest of our lives. Our entire worldview is wrapped up in what we worship and how significant we make small things to be in our lives. Things that can never offer life, we look to seeking what we can only find in Jesus, and then we get shocked when they break our hearts. I heard a preacher say once that he's not interested in people's praise, or he's not interested in the way he looks. Um, He was specifically talking about a live stream when he said this. Um, So he's like literally wrapping up both of these things. He's not interested in other people's approval. and He's not interested in the way he outwardly looks. He is only interested in what God wants for his life and if he has God's approval. And (laughs) I feel like we can all say that that's what we want. But the bigger question to ask is, is that what we actually desire? When we're honest with ourselves, do we only desire God's praise? Do we only value the audience of one Or is that just a nice slogan to put on a t-shirt? We do wrong by assuming to ourselves that we're past our idolatry, because we're not. We struggle with it on a daily basis, and what we idolize will impact the way we see the world around us. It can't be otherwise. What you worship, what you value in your life will impact the way you see your life. And because of that, we come to our last point, and that's that worship is a lifestyle. Whatever you worship will in some way impact the way you view your life. The way you live your life is impacted by the things that you worship, and we can't see it otherwise. We can't see worship as something that begins and ends here on a Sunday because that leaves us broken six days out of seven. If we think that it's enough to come here on Sunday mornings and worship God for a couple hours and then go into the rest of our lives and worship something that can't offer the life that only Jesus offers to us, we will be broken six days out of seven and maybe even the seventh day as well. We can come here. It's a beautiful thing to be able to come here and worship. We come once a week to be encouraged by the body of Christ worshiping together. But if you think that that's enough to feed you, to fulfill you for your entire life, even just for one week, it's not. It can't be enough. 
That's not what we're offered in the, in, in, in the Word of God. We're not encouraged to only engage with Him one day a week. The psalmist says, David says in Psalm 1, that the blessed man is studying the Word of God day and night. He is, he is meditating on God's Word day and night. And I know I'm guilty of coming here on Sunday and expecting something so great that it'll impact the way I go out into my life. And just by studying, just by hearing somebody else speak on a Sunday morning, I'm like, you know what? That's enough encouragement. That's enough motivation for me to go out into the rest of my week and do the things that I should do. And you know what that is? That's just motivational speaking. That's listening to a TED Talk. And assuming that somebody's 10 to 30 minute dissertation on something you never considered in your life is some groundbreaking, enlightening information that can change the way you see the world around you, when really, it's just somebody talking one time. And if we diminish God's word, if we diminish the preaching of God's word to being just some motivational speaking, then we won't ever experience the true beauty of life in Christ. We don't speak motivationally here on Sunday mornings. We don't. Sometimes our messages are hard to digest. We see that in the gospel. We see followers of Jesus. We see disciples being turned away when Jesus says, you, if whoever wants to live with me has to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, and people turn away at that. It is a hard message to digest. It's not easy and it's not motivational, but it is good and it's the only good thing. You see, our worship is a lifestyle. It is a daily decision to praise God and not the things of this world because there is one who is worthy. And that's Jesus. What you worship will come out in your life. If you worship perceptions, people are only judges. And the way you like or dislike people depends on whether they approve or disapprove of what you do in your life. If you worship beauty, if you worship appearances, People are valued by their comparison to you. You respect people who look enough like you that you're like, all right, I'm on par with them. But people who are lesser than you, you look down on, and people who are greater than you, you lose your life from. And if we worship some moral or even a political ideal, we create in-groups and out-groups based on a line drawn in the sand that might change tomorrow something that in no way has biblical basis, maybe even applies the word of God to its arguments, but really isn't valuing Christianity at all. And we ignore the call to pursue love, to pursue, to pursue people, to pursue peace. We ignore that call because we stand on some ground that is shifting beneath us. What I'm trying to get at here is that if you worship something in this world, anything you worship aside from God seeks to divide us. There is no object of worship aside from God who can combine, who unifies. God, worship of the triune God is the only thing that unites us. And we live in a world that seeks to divide. How does Jesus respond to that? We see that true worship of God unites people in Jesus' ministry. In John 4, Jesus seeks out probably the least likely person that you would expect him to reach out to. As a Jewish man, he reaches out to a Samaritan woman, and not just a Samaritan woman, an idolatrous, adulterous 
Samaritan woman. And so we see everything that seeks to divide us in humanity can be found in the differences between Jesus, the Jewish man, and this Samaritan woman, the adulterous, sinful... Uh, if you look at... If you look at the, I mean, we've talked about this before, but if you look at, in history, the contrast between Jews and Samaritans, especially around this time, it was obviously a point of contention. That alone would have been enough for you not to associate with somebody. You know, Jesus uses the parable of the Good Samaritan to emphasize that it doesn't matter. This whole conflict is insignificant. And Jesus proves that in his conversation with the Samaritan woman. Every single social and cultural and gender boundary is shattered by Jesus in this moment of to her and preaching the gospel and offering life. So I ask you a question. Is there somebody that comes to mind? Is there something, some argument that comes to mind, some standard of, of beauty or some, some value of somebody else's perception that comes to mind when you think of, maybe I overvalue that. Maybe I, I think about that too harshly. Jesus stepped into a world that was seeking to divide people by every fabric of their being. And he does everything he can to unify. And he uses the gospel to do it. That is the only message that can unify. Worship is a lifestyle. And our worship of God is the only worship that can unify. That is the essence of verse 16. Hebrews 13, 16 is all about your reaction, your response to the life you find in Christ. It's reaction to the worship, the worship that we offer through praising God naturally flows into our everyday lives. And that's what verse 16 is saying when it says, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. See, the author of Hebrews does not say God is pleased as soon as he says the words, offer to God praise with your mouth. And with that worship, God is pleased. He declares that God is pleased with your worship only after he discusses how it impacts your daily life because that is the true nature of our worship. It's not something that we can come together and do just here on Sunday morning and then go out into our lives and hate our neighbors. Right? We know that to be true. This is only a small part of our worship. Our praise to God is amazing and it is desired from Him, but it is not the only part of our worship. We need our worship to influence the rest of our lives. And if you think that praise to God is enough, James has something for you. See, James writes to us and he declares that if you believe but have no deeds to supplement it, your faith is dead. And he's not saying that our faith alone, like our faith alone leads us to salvation. That is true. Our faith comes first and works flow out of it. I don't want you to come away thinking that you need good works to be saved. You don't. But what he's saying is your faith can be called into question if it is faith alone without works. What he's saying is your faith is dead if it doesn't influence the way you live your life. Verse 19 is pretty harsh. He says, demons believe there is one God and shudder. So if you believe there's one God, great. You're on par with demons. And in verse 26, he says, like the body without the spirit is dead. 
so too faith without works, faith without deeds is dead. And every single one of us is found in that place. Every single one of us has fallen short of true and proper worship to God. We have not offered our lives as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. We are found dead in our pursuit of things of this world, looking for the life that can only be found in Jesus. We believe that in them, we try to convince ourselves that in these things of this world, in the things that we experience, we can find life. But ultimately, we know before we even try it that they can't offer that. They might promise to offer life, but we know even before we try it that they can't. They can't measure up. They won't offer us life. An atheist moral philosopher by the name of David Foster Wallace, um, he says it this way. He says, and this is, this is crazy and it's beautiful and it's so true. He says that anything in this world that we worship will ultimately leave us broken. This is somebody who does not believe in God. This, is somebody, this has been revealed to somebody who doesn't believe in, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says that anything in this world that we worship will ultimately leave us broken and empty. And with that, he argues that that's why humans need gods. That's why we invented gods, is his argument. Because we found that the things of this world weren't worthy of our worship. They left us broken. He says, that's why we invented gods. And he lists Jesus in a laundry list of other gods that we can choose to worship so that we can be fulfilled with things beyond this life. And he's so close. But you see the problem with that. And the problem is this. There was no laundry lists of gods that walked into the death and darkness of our world and shined a light. There's no laundry lists of gods who are the word of the Father God made flesh who knows what it's like to struggle with the things of this world like we did. He knows the temptations of this world. There's no laundry list of gods who walked through the temptations that we experience and was found blameless. There is one, there is one who suffered and died on the cross, one who paid the price for sin, one who was resurrected to offer us the true everlasting life that we sought after in the other things of this world. There's only one, and his name is Jesus. He suffered and died. Jesus paid the price. He is the true sacrifice, the worthy sacrifice who died. And we follow him into his death. So that, and we know the end of the story, as Jesus is resurrected, if we have followed him into his death, so too will we be united in a resurrection like his. We Suffer as Jesus has suffered, as the author of Hebrews says, we follow him in our suffering outside the camp. But the story doesn't end there because the gospel doesn't end there. Jesus suffers and dies for our sins and is raised to life. And what we hear, this promises from Romans 8. We hear that if we are united in his death, so too we will be united in his resurrection. We have everlasting life through the one God who can offer the promise of life. Now, there is no laundry list of gods. There is no human invention of God just so that we can be satisfied 
and say, you know what, the things of this world, this sounds more like a nice TED talk right here. It sounds like, you know what, the things of this world, they're not that good. So we needed gods. It's okay to worship gods. It makes sense. It's something beyond this world. It's not that. We didn't invent gods so that we could be fulfilled. Jesus came because he knows that we need life. We need to be reunited with the Father. Life comes because God came down, stepped into darkness, shined a light, died for our sins, and was resurrected. That's the truth. We didn't invent Jesus so that we could be content as we live this life and then die. How bleak is that? God is true. His word is true. Jesus' sacrifice is true. And it is what we have afforded to us. It offers us everlasting life. We are united in his resurrection. As his light shines in the darkness and as the death of this world gives way to the everlasting life that we experience when we are united in Christ's resurrection. That's why the author of Hebrews can say this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. That is, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That is our promise today. Worship is a lifestyle of sacrifice. Our lives are poured out as a living sacrifice to God in the pattern that Jesus was. We offer to God our lives as a sacrifice in order to worship him properly. And that looks like praising him, yes. And it also looks like serving him as we go into the world we live in. A world that is convinced that something else offers life that isn't Jesus. We have the opportunity this new year, when we're starting this new year of 2022, we get the opportunity to go out into the worlds we live in and shine the light of the gospel. We have that opportunity. But it starts with us. Do we know that worship is bigger than what happens here on Sunday mornings? Do we believe it? Do we know that worship is larger than songs or even larger than an entire worship service? It's greater than that. Our desire for you here, our desire for the entire church as a whole is that we would be hearing the word of God here on Sunday mornings as we fellowship together and using that to go out into our lives and serve. I don't know what that looks like for you. It's simple things. It can start so simple. We had our Art of Neighboring series where we talked about how just getting to know your neighbors is a step in serving God, in loving God and loving others. It might just look like knowing their names, knocking on a door and saying hello. When you get home from work, or from church this morning, and you want to rush into your house because you see your neighbor on their lawn and you might have an awkward interaction with them, does it look like stopping and saying, all right, you know what, I'll bite. What's going on? How are you? It's small things, and they can lead to bigger things, but it starts small. You see their trash cans out. Take them in when you know it's trash day, you know the man's collected it already, and you're taking yours in, you might as well just help them out a little bit, bring theirs in. I don't know how they'll react to any of this, but I promise you that you are serving God in the small things that you're doing for others. Worship is a lifestyle of sacrifice. We are offering to God a sacrifice of praise by the fruit of our lips which acknowledge his name. We acknowledge God 
And because we live in the grace that has been afforded to us through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can go out into the world we live in and serve him. So as I wrap up, as we wrap up this morning, I just want to give you an idea of how we use this, how, how this truth that worship is a lifestyle of sacrifice infects the way that our worship team and our, and our worship program is run here. Um, our goal at Hope is that everything runs intentionally. Um, we try our best and we, we, faithfully, we faithfully pursue not doing anything just off the cuff. We do our best to make sure our services are intentional as we welcome all of our, uh, we welcome ourselves together into the throne room of God. So what worship looks like on Sunday mornings here at Hope Community Church is primarily we seek to teach the gospel. We seek to tell the story of the gospel through our songs. And right now we have a four-song set list, so this works out perfectly. Um, I have, I've been brought up, I've been mentored in the idea that there are really four types of worship songs. And we have a, ton, a plethora of beautiful songs that are being written and have been written, um, whether that goes back to our hymns or whether it's a, song, a contemporary worship song that was written yesterday. We have a beautiful combination of worship songs that offer the story of the gospel through singing. And by the grace of God, the church is pretty familiar with a lot of these songs. We have a large playbook to run off of. So the first type of song discusses God's holiness. Hear how this is the story of gospel, of the gospel. This is the narrative of redemption. We start with God's holiness as if this is creation. And we're looking at God being holy before time. These are songs like How Great Thou Art or Come Thou Fount or This Is Amazing Grace, something that points us to God's glory. And the second song tells us the story just like what's written in, what's written in the Bible. The next part of that is that we sin. We have sinned and fall short of that glory that we have just sung about. But God's grace enters in. See how this is a bit of a peek behind the curtain? Maybe you're getting an idea of, oh, maybe you could think back to a worship service where you're like, whoa, those songs, like something happened, something connected there. This is the secret. <laughs> I'm trying to reveal it, not trying to hold it back from you. So the second part, it makes sense that the story then would come to a point where we sin but God's grace enters in. This is a song like, Lord, I need you. How he loves. Build my life. These songs tell us that there is hope in the darkness. We sin, but God's grace enters in. And the natural way that we continue from there is we point to the cross. Because God's grace enters in through Jesus' payment on the cross and Amazingly, by God's grace, we have an amazing selection of songs that tell the story of the cross. What happened when Jesus paid the price for sins? I can give you 20 songs that tell that story. Today we sang Jesus paid it all, and how true, how simple, and how complex that truth is. It is the cross written in song. And that leads us naturally into our announcements and the sermon and what you hear, what you gain from what the message that we have prepared for you, that God has prepared for us as a congregation comes after we look at the cross. And what happens after the service is we sing one more song. And that song is a response. It's a response to the cross. It's a response to the gospel. 
And it's also a response to the message because prayerfully, every time we deliver a message here at Hope, it will tell the story of the gospel. And it better connect. It better connect with the meaning behind the gospel. So we are responding with our last song with a reaction to the gospel and a reaction to the message that has been delivered. And our reaction to hearing a message about what God has done in our lives is a natural celebration. It's a celebration of everlasting life because like we said, we are united in Christ's death. We are united in his resurrection. So our everlasting life is rooted in celebration. And that's beautiful. And that's why we leave here celebrating God. We do our best to show you what the truth of your life found in Christ is. And now I want to mention that just because we celebrate doesn't mean that every song that we leave here with is going to be peppy and the most ultimate arrangement with electric guitars and, and flaring drums that you've ever heard. A lot of times it does do that. A lot of times we do celebrate with a loud song that's exciting and gives us energy as we worship God. But sometimes a true look at our reaction to God is solemn. Sometimes it's simple and it's looking to God and saying, you are worthy. You have paid the price for sin. That's what we're going to do as we invite the worship team up in just a second to lead us in one more song. Today, we're going to declare that worship is something that we can't do on our own. If you think that leaving here today, you can go out into the world and do it well on your own, I can promise you that you won't make it to Monday without recognizing that you have fallen short and worshipped something else. God goes before us. What's amazing is we need God to worship God. And he's not shy in telling us that. He has gone before us in every single way. And he says, come follow me. I've given you an example. He, we have a perfect example in Christ of how we ought to live a life that is sacrificial to God. It's amazing. God has offered us everything we need to live life in godliness. And we get to go out this week trusting that he has that prepared for us, trusting that he is the one that sets our vision. He is the one that is the only praise in our hearts. He is first in our hearts. He's our king reigning in heaven. And he is the only one found worthy of our worship. Do we believe that this morning? Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship. We get to go out from here and proclaim that good news to the world around us. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our one good sacrifice. Jesus, you are the one true sacrifice. You are the perfect sacrifice for sins. There's nothing else we can do. There's nothing we can do to unite ourselves to God. Jesus, you are the only way to the Father. We thank you for your sacrifice this morning. And we pray that as we go out into the world, though we know we will fall on our face, inevitably we won't fall short of worshiping you. Would you point us back to yourself? When we fall flat on our face, when we look up, would you be able to help us recognize that your hand is outstretched to us? And in the ways that we fall short, you are there to help lift us and guide us towards you again. So we love you. We want to worship you truthfully. We want to worship you with true and proper worship. As we declare your name, 
And as we live our lives in accordance with what you have said for us, what you desire for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you all please stand as we worship and close?